This Quarrcast podcast is brought to you by Reframing Our Stories. Conversations with your loved ones about relationships, puberty, and the body can sometimes be awkward. At Reframing Our Stories, we say, you are worth the awkward, and so is your family. We've developed three age-based sets of conversation cards with questions and prompts that can help get these conversations going. Use them at dinner, before bedtime, or in the car. Learn more through our store at www.reframingourstories.com. That's www.reframingourstories.com. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your uh, your host. I was going to try to come up with an adjective, John. Your something host, but... Benevolent. Thank you. I am your benevolent host, also known as a uh, benevolent dictator. <laughs> Is there any such thing as a benign tyrant? No. No, okay. Benevolent host, I'm going to go with that. I like it. But I'm your benevolent host. I, actually, let me back that up. I'm one of your benevolent hosts. I, how dare I take some sort of like like position <laughs> of hierarchy. I want, we're co-hosts. So my name is Nat. Uh, with me as always is my brother, John, who looks like he's sipping on an old-fashioned as usual because, you know, he can. So say, say hey to everybody, John. Hey to everybody, John. Nice. Well done. I, I wasn't sure if you'd catch on that one. Um, this is the church. Uh, this is the church. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to do the rest of the podcast in this voice. Uh, this is the podcast. <laughs> this is the podcast, though. We, uh, we call this, this is not church, because if it was church, you would have left by now. And uh, you'd be right. But I have been hesitant in the last few episodes to remind people that before they leave, they should make sure and put something in the offering plate. Because we, you know, we we want to make sure everyone gets a hold of their blessing. You know what I'm saying? And we are yeah. offering, actually. Yeah. Are we still offering our, our money back guarantee? Money back guarantee uh, that uh, you will receive. What was it? Are we at ten times? I, th- I think we upped it to to ten, from seven to ten fold return on your on your tithe offering. Um, With the caveat in genuine faith, which right. will be the the final arbiters of whether there was enough faith involved. So don't worry. Right. But we're you can trust us. Uh, <laughs> it worked for uh, Craig Groeschel and Life Church. So. Or is it Life Church? Whichever one it is. I just read an article about that. Anyway, before I ramble on anymore, let's introduce a guest. We have uh, an awesome guest with us. I'm super excited to to, to chat with him and and see what's up. And let me read you a little bit about him, and then we'll we'll do what we do. We'll jump into a conversation. So with us today, uh, Father Adam Bucko is an Episcopal priest, spiritual director, and activist who has been a committed voice in the movement for the renewal of Christian contemplative spirituality and the growing new monastic movement. He has taught. Engaged Contemplative Spirituality in Europe and the United States and has authored uh, his new book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. And he also co-authored Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation and the New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. Uh, Adam lives in New York with his wife, Kyra Jewelingo, a Buddhist teacher and former nun in the community of Thich Nhat Hanh. Together, they lead the Buddhist Christian community for meditation and action. And wow. That is a whole lot of amazing stuff. So welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? Thanks. Thank you so much. I'm well, and uh, it's great to be here. Every time I ask somebody to give me a little bit of their background, I know it's a loaded question. You know, with you, I feel like that's doubly so. I feel like like, like we might open up an awesome can of worms. But if you wouldn't mind, I know that's your bio. Um, those are the, the, you know, but uh, walk us through a little bit of your background. Tell us how you, uh, you kind of show, arrived where you are. Yeah, so I was born in uh, Poland, 
1975. So during the time when the totalitarian regime was still sort of in charge. Uh, growing up in Poland, I realized that essentially I had two different choices. One was to just surrender and do what many people did to kind of try whatever would work to numb myself, not to feel the pain or to engage in activism. And in Poland at that time, most of the activist work was sort of rooted in the church. Uh, churches were really the only free places in the country where we could go and articulate some of our longings and some of our dreams. Um, and I was inspired by few very courageous priests, uh, especially these two guys, Father Jerzy Pobiuszko and Father Stanisław Suchowolec. Uh, both of them were kind of advocating nonviolence, were sort of like Gandhian figures in Poland, you know, speaking truth to power, gathering people by thousands and essentially helping them to to turn their longings and their heartbreaks into nonviolent uh, actions against the state. And at that time, you know, as I kind of was so inspired by them, I started feeling like I wanted to be like them, which I would imagine, you know, all the kids do that. We see things or people that move us and we sort of want to imitate them. So as a kid, I remember building a little altar at home and trying to do what I saw priests do um, in church, try to do mass, you know, and kind of ordering my friends around how to, you know, make the whole thing going. It just so happened that both of those priests were killed by the state. And that was a terrifying experience for me because out of that, I think I got two things. Number one, that as I was kind of beginning to open up spiritually and connecting with something that felt like this kind of a motherly presence that was holding me, even though around me there was so much violence and everything was kind of falling apart, so I realized that in order to, to kind of truly say yes to that meant to do what those priests did. It meant that saying yes to God made saying no to everything that violated that love that I was feeling in my prayer life. And number two, observing them and the fact that they died, I realized that this kind of life has consequences and there are no guarantees that we will come out of it alive. You know? So that was really one of the kind of most foundational experiences in my childhood. And then, you know, after a few, few years after that, we came to the U.S., things happened, I sort of fell apart, ended up in a Hindu monastery because I felt that I needed to learn how to do contemplative life um, in a kind of a structured way that took me to India. And that's where my work with homeless youth uh, began, which eventually brought me back to the U.S. And I started working on the streets of New York City, working with homeless LGBTQ young people who were unhoused. And that was another sort of initiation. For me, you know? And so one thing led to another, and here I am today still trying to do my best to say yes to that motherly presence that in the Christian tradition sometimes we call God 
and to say no to all the things that violate. But it seems like the uh, like the consequence of of taking that part of Jesus's message seriously is is a life that you have built for yourself, right? I mean, I, it, it always sort of amazes me that the church and one of the things I was literally writing writing stuff down while you were talking, but one of the things that I'm heartbroken by is, especially in the Western church, I'm heartbroken by the church's attitude towards activism, except in, obviously in rare cases. It's not, it's not across the board, but in the vast majority of Western churches, activism is looked at something that's outside of their purview. And in your world, that was absolutely not the case, right? Who else was going to advocate for you if not them? Yeah, the church was completely on the side of the people, making their spaces available, putting together their resources in service of this dream that people just kind of felt in their homes. But once the system collapsed in 1989, uh, you know, the Communist Party that was governing Poland went out of business because, you know, 70 or so percent of Poles existed outside of the system. So at some point, they just kind of had to pack their bags and leave. But then the church flipped and all of a sudden tried to step in and essentially replace the party and to run the country to capture all the power that was available at that time. And that was very unfortunate because it's almost like, you know, in the process of kind of fighting with the totalitarian system, the church developed a totalitarian mind essentially became a reflection of what they opposed. And that was just very unfortunate. And that's when most of us young people left the church because the church stopped being trustworthy, with few exceptions of those people who were real, of those people who really represented the ideal that we stood for. I'm moving more and more towards this idea that the word church and power should be antithetical. Like those should be you know what I'm saying? And I think we can make a case for this happening throughout history, that, you know, when the church is in a minority stance or when they're out of power and they sort of exist outside of those structures, they're highly effective. And then a second, they get a chance, though, human nature maybe just takes over and they're like, well, now we can be the guys in charge. You know, starts start, maybe it starts with Constantine and rolls forward until what we have now is what we have in the United States. And you're here, so you know. What we have is this, is this unholy union of church and state, where they are more cooperative than they ever should be. I don't know where they lost that adversarial sort of disposition with the state, but that's what I find the most. I'm with you. I'm like, I, there, I, I know of people right now who are working inside of those systems who are um, amazing, generous, giving people, um, but they are fighting an uphill battle every single day, you know, against the power of this other larger institution. So, I don't know. I applaud, I applaud what you do, but I understand it's, it's probably difficult. Well, and don't we, don't we see this? I mean, we see this throughout history, right? That there are these, I don't know how to describe them as church people, but that doesn't really sound right. Theologians, maybe, I guess. But, you know, during World War II, you have like Karl Barth, right? And Bonhoeffer, who speak out against the dictatorship of, of Hitler. But then years later, they're kind of lost to history unless you are like a history buff, right? And you want to read about these these theologians, then you have, like you're talking about in Poland, I've never heard of these people, uh, but I bet you within certain contexts they're very important. And then uh, with like within the apartheid, right? In South Africa, you have Desmond Tutu. Again, someone considered to be a little too radical. Uh, so within the 
what we would call the norm, these people are not part of that. You know, Gandhi, right? And something that they all seem to have in common is this idea of nonviolence. I mean, even Bonhoeffer, even being connected with, was Bonhoeffer, right? Connected with one of the assassination attempts of Hitler, yeah, I believe. Right. But, yeah. but even he talks about that as something that was, he felt like he, he was almost, his hand was forced into something that he didn't want to do. But it seems like then as the movement switches, then some kind of nationalism takes over. And I don't know, is, do you see that a, the church in general is just somehow fascinated with this idea of nationalism? Because I see it over and over again. You know, the same could be said about monastic movements uh, with early desert movements of people essentially kind of uh, saying, this is not my church. This is not what I signed up for. This is now how I understand Jesus moving kind of on the outskirts of the empire, eventually out of it. Uh, emerges uh, a, a very beautifully designed structure in the West through Benedict and others, you know, where they have so much land, so much security, then people like Franciscans and other mendicants react against that uh, because properties corrupt people, power and stability corrupts people. And then, of course, they begin to replicate uh, the same model, you know, um, and so there is something to be said about that idea that the moment we are too comfortable, we lose something and we begin to kind of replace vulnerability and this kind of radical trust with uh, security and power and institutional stability that, you know, can guarantee us uh, Miss retirements, but not necessarily, uh, you, that doesn't necessarily equip us with much courage. <laughs> yeah. Well then, well, then you have someone like Henry Nowen, right? Who is, I consider, one of the our best contemplatives that I can point to and say, okay, this is, but again, he's, he's so, I don't want to say outside the norm because I don't think that's the right, the right term for it, but he's, Within the mainstream Christian, especially American Christianity, he's so not what we expect that no one knows how to deal with that. Uh, so how do we, because obviously this book is about contemplation, and uh, how do we reach towards these types of people as um, someone who can give us direction on a better way to connect with um, Jesus or the divine? Because like, I see this as more interfaith because, like, on any given day, I feel like I'm more Buddhist than I am Christian. If I, well, I don't, I don't claim the word Christian anymore. I say I'm either I'm more Buddhist than say I am Jesus follower. Do you see more of an interfaith connection that that allows us to find these contemplative teachers? I guess is a good way to say it. Yeah. So I think that the contemplative spaces, uh, especially in the U.S., have always been interfaith or interspiritual, or some people use um, a term called new uh, kind of deep ecumenism. Uh, and that is because a lot of those technologies and communities emerged out of monastic situations and monks of different traditions. Oftentimes when they meet, they say that they have more in common with each other than with, you know, members of their own churches. And a perfect example of that would be the friendship that Thich Nhat Hanh had with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or 
Thomas Merton, you know, Thomas Merton, after spending a day uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh, said, here I met my brother, you know, who, and when I asked him about what he learned in his monastic life, he told me that he learned how to close a door well. Um, and he knew exactly what he meant, you know, it's, it, it, because in Benedictine spirituality, it's about essentially something very similar, this kind of mindful way of being, this kind of receptive way of, 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 of touching everything in such way that we can touch life as deeply as possible. Um, so I do think that the contemplative movement uh, in many ways already is very uh, interfaith and interspiritual and needs to be that way because contemplatives of all traditions have a lot in common. I mean, you know, my household is a perfect example. My uh, wife uh, is a Buddhist contemplative and a Buddhist teacher, a former nun in the community of Thich Nhat Hanh. I identify myself as a Christian. I'm a Christian priest. And uh, we find that, you know, even though uh, doctrinally speaking, our traditions don't always agree. Christians don't know what to make out of the Buddhist concept of non-self. You know, Buddhists don't know what to make of a Christian idea of possibly a personal God. But yet, when we meet in the silence of our practice, there is mutuality, there is understanding, and there are no questions that need to be. There's just this sense of, oh, yes, we know exactly what we know exactly how we are related and we know exactly what our mission in the world is together. And I think that that's the beauty of contemplative spirituality, contemplative prayer, you know. And I think the church could use more of that because so much, whether conservative or, uh, or progressive, you know, I oftentimes feel like, you know, on some level, the conservative church and the progressive church are miles away from each other. Yet, oftentimes, I find that it's the same program running them, them both. It's just that variables differ, you know, uh, but everything else is, is the same. And so much of it is kind of not really focused on the heart of it all, which is uh, how can we encounter the divine and be changed by it? You know, like to me, that's the essence of, of what I want to stand for encountering the divine and and letting God live through me as much and as often as possible. That's the, uh, but the difficulty with the, with, with all of that is, especially from, you know, we come back to this a lot, we I qualify, especially from a Western mindset. Um, we don't deal with unstructured things well. You know what I mean? We need programs. Um, if I go to church and I don't have a program that walks me through the, the order of service, you know, or, uh, you know, especially if you sort of go to high church or whatever. But, you know, let's make, make no mistake. Every church has their patterns and their formulas. And we like our truths to be black and white. And so within, at least the way that I view it, within this sort of contemplative mindset, we leave space for not knowing. And we leave space for mystery. And that, that's uncomfortable for people unless they're ready for that, I think. I, I know I wasn't ready for it for a long time. I needed or wanted somehow the structure, but... But now I'm very comfortable in this space of, of doubt, for lack of a better word, but just not knowing. What you, I mean, we think. Yeah, and I mean, I think not knowing is the is what, on some level, makes space for the spirit. Yeah, 
to come into yeah. our lives. It's the core of what it means to be a contemplative. Uh, you know, I do think that contemplative life needs structures as well, but those structures are different. They are not focused on absolute truths. They are focused on helping us to develop processes that can take us into that state of curious not knowing where we can sort of, you know, gather everything that we know and have, put it aside, and just be there in a state of curious not knowing, waiting. Uh, right, or right. what I call that impulse of God to kind of arise within us so we can consent to us. So it can begin to do with what we have and who we are, whatever it wants. And of course, you know, that's not how our churches are thinking about growth <laughs> strategies and new marketing campaigns. Oh my gosh. And yeah. Getting members. Because in the end, I think what contemplation does, it doesn't necessarily make one more religious. It makes one more free. And that's something that the church, generally speaking, is made of, right? So when we look at this sort of backwards, and maybe that's the issue, is we see, you know, if you view structure as a way to enforce conformity, or if you see structure as a way to exercise control versus, uh, versus using structures as a way to give people tools, and here are the practices that you can employ that can help you find mindfulness, that can help you find something. That, you know what I'm saying? So I, that's the way I, I, I see the, uh, say for example, the sacraments now. I look at the sacraments in exactly that way. I don't see them as mandates of you must do, therefore, you know, so that you can. But they are, the Methodist Church and others would call it their means of grace, right? These are ways to, they're ways for us to, to, to help us to contextualize God and to encounter God. But I think what happens so often is we get that flipped and then the structure becomes so onerous or we become servants of the structure rather than the structure serving us. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We kind of fetishize structure. Yeah, exactly. That's a good and word. I'm writing that down. That becomes what defines us and how well we can function within that structure, uh, you know, becomes kind of... Uh, a signifier as to whether we're winning the game of religion or not. And that's how we define success too, right? I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's another, that's another issue that I have with church in general. I've, is, is this, I ran that rat race for many, many, many years. And how do you define success? You know, you define success by gathering more people, you know, and that, and then that has that, that, that effect of, of verifying or validating that what you've done is good or they wouldn't come and it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. It just feeds itself. So, yeah. But I like that word. I, I like how you put that, that it fetishizes. It fetishizes the structure because you're exactly right. I don't even, I, I was going to say borderline. I don't think it's borderline. I think it's idolatry. Yeah. Um, when we get to this place of like, this is the most important thing and we will sacrifice human beings so as to not threaten this thing over here. And, you know, you mentioned success. I mean. Yeah. What is that even, right? <laughs> It's like, you know, usually that's measured as church attendance, as you mentioned. And the thing is, we can do all kinds of things to get people to come to events and other things, but that literally means nothing unless we're creating uh, some kind of situations in an environment in which people can encounter the divine. Other than that, it's a waste of time, if you ask and yes, of course, you know, it's very meaningful to the community projects and all of that. But how much more powerful and effective that is when uh, 
you know, action simply flows out of that experience. Well, and I found that, so when I was younger and I'm being, you know, I'm sitting in a church and the, and the pastor's teaching me or telling me, he's not teaching me, he's telling me how to pray. It, it never connected for me. I never understood prayer. I just didn't. It, it was, I did these like half-assed prayers because I was told I had to. You know, now fast forward years later when I left the church and I started breaking down these walls between the Christian faith and the other faiths. And Thich Nhat Hanh is someone who introduced to, to me this idea of meditation, right? And this mindfulness and this connection to the divine, or however you want to call it, the divine nature. Everybody has a different word for it. But all of a sudden, I'm not going to say prayer made sense, but a connection to something of higher power than me made sense. So I use what Thich Nhat Hanh explained within his meditation and mindfulness, and I use that within what I connect to, what I consider the divine. And all of a sudden, I have um, a connection, a way of communicating. Um, but if you go and you go talk to someone who's like Western evangelical fundamentalist, and you tell them that it's like, well, that's a Satan. That's 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 dark. It's it's taking you away from your connection to the true God. And it's like I have never felt more connected to a div- a divinity of, of someone that is something that is divine more than when I took the practice of mindfulness and brought it into my connection to the divine. And I, and I just don't understand. I, I guess it scares them. I, it's the it's the only thing I can say. And you know, for someone who's kind of, I think socialized into a system where the system is actually equivalent with God. Of course, it would scare them if, you know, that, that, that we're learning how to supposedly be in touch with God, you know, from someone who's a Buddhist. It basically destroyed, destroys their whole framework. But yet, I mean, your experience of, of experiencing what you, what you just described, not uncommon. Many people, including people like Dan Berrigan and, and, and others, uh, openly talked about how they learned the meaning of prayer from Thich that he helped them to, through, through breath and through this kind of a simple way of being present to touch what, what Christians call the divine. Uh, and it changed them. It changed their life. It healed them. It enabled them to show up in case of Dan Berrigan on the front lines protesting and 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 being a very courageous presence you know so i think that people who are talking about it this way you know that oh this is from the devil simply don't have a clue what they're talking about and and actually i don't think have any understanding of christianity and where this stuff comes from and what it's about i, I think it's as simple as uh, as that you know well, it, it- and it gave me permission to step back and say, okay, so in, say, the Buddhist culture, they, they look at someone like Jesus and they, they will call him a bodhisattva, right? So they acknowledge him as something that is greater than. Then you go to, that, then it gave me permission to look, say, like in Islam and say that uh, Jesus is a prophet. Now, I might, you know, I might have a different idea of what Jesus is than they do, but all of a sudden, we have these connections, right? So uh, the Buddhist culture and the and the Muslim culture and the Christian culture all have these connections. And for me, you know, because I am 
you know, based in Christianity. It's my connection of Jesus to these other, to these other religions and how that works. And for what I think is interesting is they are more willing to accept Jesus as, as an important figure, uh, within religion as a whole than we are of, of their, you know, of Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or whatever. Right. Uh, and it, it just awakens this idea that Christianity is like on the, on the, we're on the last lap and we need to catch up because it seems like every other religion has already realized that to work and make something better, we all have to work together. Yeah. And you know, like, I mean, some Christians are, are willing to go there, but that's a small minority. Um, there's some wonderful documents that came out of the second Vatican council, uh, that talk about how, uh, not only do we have to affirm what's true in other traditions, but in fact, we have to preserve. It. Uh, but even though that is, let's say, the official, the official teaching of the Catholic Church, still most Catholics uh, won't, um, you know, won't agree with that. Uh, so I think that this is the difficulty. And oftentimes, I mean, in my experience, you know, I've spent some time working in India uh, in in a Christian ashram that was located in the slums outside of Delhi that kind of combined contemplation and action. Um, and it was extraordinary because we were surrounded by different communities, different monasteries, whether Sufi or Hindu or Sikh. And, you know, all of those people from those different ashrams and monasteries would come uh, for a morning prayer and meditation. And they would say, yeah, when I when I close my eyes, I can see Jesus here. This is, you know, this is, and it wasn't a problem for them. That was just kind of an extension of how they saw the divine. In the meantime, you would have, you know, Christian missionaries, especially from the U.S., coming in, evangelicals, and like wanting to exercise demons every way they looked, you know, because they felt that it was unsafe and etc. That is a problem because I think that, what I experienced in some of the mentors from other traditions that I've had is that oftentimes they actually had a deeper grasp of who Christ is. Um, you know, something of Christ just simply lived in them. And that cannot always be said about some of the Christians. Well, we had, we had Safi Kaskas on. And in a lot of ways, I think he had a much better connection to Christ than even I do. And, you know, he's Muslim. And, um, that was, that was a moment where I'm like, you know, I don't call myself a Christian, but I should understand this person of Jesus better because I was raised a Christian. And in a lot of ways, I felt like he had a much better connection to the side of Jesus that we should be following. You know, the Jesus that, that, you know, wanted to save the marginalized, the save the sick, the, the widow, the poor, the outcast. And whereas, especially in America and I'll say Western civilization, because I think this is, this shows up in Western Europe as well. Um, that's not, that's not the, the Jesus that we follow in these countries. The Jesus that they follow, we follow is the Jesus who would come down with an AK 47 and, and start raining bullets on the people who disagree with him. And not only is it okay, it's cheered and, and, and spoken of in almost like 
in a in a idolatrous way. It's, it's scary. Yeah. Like whenever you come across people, regardless of their religious background, but they but if you come across people who are committed to say a nonviolence, for example, that there's an automatic meeting of the minds. Like, cause I know, I know how, I know what Americans think of Islam. Um, they don't know much about it. And there is obviously, there are obviously radical and fundamentalist portions of that, but there's a deep tradition of peace inside of Islam, just like there is inside of Christianity, just like there is inside of Buddhism. Um, but do you think that is one way that, that kind of helps kind of clear those cobwebs away of like, okay, when we get down to it, um, there is this fundamental commitment to nonviolence and to the, preservation and the sanctity of life that that kind of helps us get through some of those other obstacles maybe absolutely you know for many many years i've been part of this loosely organized group called the contemplative alliance it was initially put together by a global peace initiative of women uh kind of connected to the un but eventually it, it it sort of started living on its own and we are a network of contemplatives from different traditions, oftentimes gathered together. And we're talking Native American elders, Buddhist monks, Sufi sheikhs, Hindu swamis, Christian monks. And oftentimes when we gather, we spend the first day in silence. And then after that, we begin to have conversations with each other, talking about, you know, how to address some of our current problems from a spiritual perspective. And I have to tell you, every time we gather together, there's this deep sense of, uh, of sibling, the, this connection that we experience on the level of the mind and on the level of the heart. And I think that in some ways, it would be helpful if we could create more spaces like that, where we can kind of drop in and experience what it means to be human, what it means to be spiritual in that kind of a deep sense. And I think out of that, we could begin instructing our traditions. The truth is that, you know, it's not just Christianity. All of our traditions have problems. All of our traditions develop pathologies. And as Father Bede Griffiths, who spent uh, half a century living in India, uh, once said that, you know, all of our traditions need to reimagine and reinvent themselves in the light of the contemplative experience that that tradition offers, and then in relationship to the contemplative experience that is available in Buddhism, in Christianity, in all the traditions, and then also in conversation with contemporary science, uh, social sciences, and etc. Only there can we be healthy. And I think there is something to that. Of course, on the other hand, many young people uh, are moving beyond our traditions. And I think that we are kind of, um, you know, especially with all the statistics about the nuns and spiritual but not religious, I think that we are witnessing something completely new being born. That there are no structures yet, you know, no uh, processes for spiritual formation. But there are so many people that I meet almost on a daily basis, who are committing this themselves to this kind of a new vision, call it interspirituality or post-religious spirituality, where people are trying to kind of resurrect the essentials of our faiths, but also understanding that oftentimes the contexts 
within which those essentials are held are so unhealthy that perhaps it's time to move outside of those structures. You know, one of my friends, Matthew Fox, often says that this uh, point in history that we simply don't have the luxury to travel with our basilicas and cathedrals on our backs, that we have to travel with our backpacks. Just take what is most essential and move forward because um, what's needed is those transformative practices that can change us and, and prepare us for how to become, how to be holy, how to be compassionate in this world that is sort of falling apart. Yeah, what struck me when you said that, by the way, you're, you're giving me so much good stuff. I'm, I'm taking notes. So this is, <laughs> but the word that kind of popped into my head when you were talking was sort of this, uh, was nomadic. And there is a, there is a tradition within Christianity, especially early Christianity, of being basically nomadic, of, of not having, you know, not having a home per se. Um, so we, we read obviously in, in, the, in the book of Acts that the early church met from house to house and they, um, and it and it seems like like, and I'm oversimplifying, but but you could make a case. I think that the second that that they settled in a place and began to build structures around that place, that suddenly that sense of that that sense of connection was lost because then you, so, you suddenly begin to internalize. Now I have to be worried about this thing, and and now. That means there's an outside that has to be defended against as well. And look, eventually you you become what many of our churches are now, which is real estate companies. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. you know, we're managing buildings, beautiful buildings, sometimes sure. in sometimes buildings, but it's so much energy to manage those buildings that we have very little energy left to to imagine what could happen in those buildings, you know? And so in some ways... Uh, a gathering in homes, you know, perhaps is what we will have to return to. Also, gathering in forests, gathering in nature, gathering at the beach. And John and I have a friend in in uh, Southern California named Paul, and that's what we, what ultimately led him to. Like he just he just walked away. His church closed, and they were and they made this they made that calculation. We are spending so much money, and spending so much, I mean, 80% of the resources probably were going to the maintenance of that structure um, that they just close it all down. And then they used, have used for the last several years that that income stream to do stuff, like to go into their communities and to feed people and to do the things. And they meet when they can and they meet where they can and they, they've they become very nomadic. But to me, it's it's a lot more authentic. He's a lot happier, I'll tell you that much. Because <laughs> as a pastor, he doesn't spend his days, like you said, as a real estate manager or as a, as a CEO of some organization that has payroll to make and, you know, all this other stuff going on. I just, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm in love with the idea of, reminds me of one of the guests we had on um, named Bio Okomalafe. Oh, uh, yeah. Bio. With him and Bio's yeah. amazing. And we were talking about sort of ostensibly about deconstruction and a lot of what's going on here, right? And I think John or I brought up the idea of reconstruction. He, he kind of like shut it down. He's like, no. I, I, I don't, I don't rush off to rebuild the structures that you that you spent so much time sort of dismantling. Um, you won't know how to rebuild them yet. You'll just rebuild duplicates of what you've had. And I was like, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Maybe it's time to let the ground lay fallow for a little while. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. But, and you know, I mean, at least from my point of view, Christianity 
doesn't have to be that complicated. You know, Christianity for me is about gathering together, bringing what we can. Uh, you know, that is symbolized in bread and wine. You know, the prayers are said over bread and wine. Uh, somehow, you know, we believe that those gifts have been transformed, and then we take them back, and those gifts nourish us and 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 kind of make us aware. Uh, that even though we may disagree with each other, somehow we are part of one body. Somehow we are in relationship. And then we go into the world, actualizing that. And then, of course, it helps if we have uh, a good psycho-spiritual relational process, which, for example, things like 12 steps uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous are very helpful. And then we gather for silence, we gather for listening to the texts that our tradition has prayerfully, we celebrate the sacraments in that very simple and minimalistic way, and we are nourished by that. And we learn how to commit to each other, because once we don't have an institution, that means that we have to take care of each other, that we have to learn how to carry each other's burdens, and etc. That there's no one else to fix that, you know? And I think that that's beautiful. I don't know that we need much more than that. And of course, it's nice to have, you know, beautiful structures and all that. Some of that should remain, you know. I I personally don't like when churches are turned into condominiums and stuff like that. It sort of breaks my heart. I wish that all the churches could just stay open and available for people to walk in and have a moment of silence, have a holy moment, you know, learn how to pray learn how to meditate, learn how to be mindful. But I think the basics of it are actually very simple. And we saw that in the Franciscan movement. We saw that in the desert movement. We saw that, you know, in different base communities that movements of liberation produced all around the world, whether South Africa or Latin America, you know. And I do think that it's time to kind of go back to that because... I mean, most of the things that I hear coming from the church are about real estate, marketing campaigns, and trying to get people to come in without even really asking any questions about whether we have anything to offer. I, I remember walking into a, uh, I think it was a chapel. I was at a hospital. And I remember walking into a chapel there. And, and I had this idea, and I'm having it again now, but but that was an interesting concept where there was this space available. It wasn't necessarily manned by anybody. There was no one there, but it was a space. And there was a sense of almost instantaneous connection just walking into that space. And I've had that same experience walking into cathedrals and other holy, you know, other sacred spaces um, around the world, actually. And then I would come home and I would walk up to my church in the middle of the day and the door would be locked. Because that's not that space. That space is performative. That place is set aside for one specific function. And so maybe that's just the point. Maybe we just need to get back to church, whatever it looks like being a, an accessible space. I like that idea. Of, like, you see this in the Catholic churches all the time, right? Where the church is open and at any time of the day, you'll find somebody sitting in a pew. Absolutely. And I think that that's the beauty of holy spaces. And I do hope that some of those remain. Because I, I think that we need them. And also, like uh, John mentioned, uh, 
Thich Nhat Hanh, I think the brilliance of his approach is that then he has simple practices that can help people to tune in, to touch that silence, to enter that silence. Because of course, when you go to church on Sunday, very few sermons will be about how to do that. Well, I, I, I personally think that um, Jesus came to show us. So you look at like um, as the Israelites are wandering the desert, and they and they are moving their temple with them, right? As this this place where the holy of holies is, and unless they have that space, they don't know how to connect with God. So they move this with them wherever they go until they can find a permanent place for it. And this permanent place for the divine. And then Jesus comes and says, that's not where the divine dwells. He tears down the, 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 the curtain, right? The curtain is, is torn. And he says, and he tells us that the divine is within us. And so what happens specifically in, in our churches is they, they have taken that idea that wherever we are, the divine is with us to you are only connected to the divine when you are in your church. So they have completely restructured this idea that you are only connected to God on that Sunday morning service where the preacher or pastor, what do you want to call him, has his divine message for you. And I think that's why we have these buildings that are structurally locked at all times, except when the pastor allows us to enter into their, into their realm. And I think that's how we have lost the, what, what Jesus has told us is that we are the embodiment of Christ wherever we go. Yeah. And whenever two or more gather in my name, I will be there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think there's, um, that, that's kind of what I'm sensing these days is, is that we're reimagining what church can be. And if the church, this is so my warning or admonition or whatever to those in those places would be, be open to the change because it's coming. And if you want to be relevant in the next half century or so, um, I think you're going to have to make some adjustments. Um, I don't know that business as usual, and I may be completely wrong. You know, Donald Trump might get reelected. We might go back to, you know, evangelical sync and they run the world again. But, but there's still a groundswell, I feel. I don't know if you, if you sense that where you are too. Like there's this hunger for this kind of connection. I sense a lot of hunger. I sense this longing. And the longing is kind of, I would say, threefold. On the one hand, there is longing just, you know, so many people, especially during the pandemic, feel kind of devastated. Young people, you know, who experience the kind of anxiety that they haven't felt before. And then, of course, with, with climate change and all the stuff happening around the world, young people are anxious. The jobs that were promised them are no longer there. So there's this sense of how to work with my emotions, how to establish or touch some kind of a peace. Then the second component of that is my system was not designed for the kind of world that I live in. Um, it's perfectly normal that I'm that that I'm anxious because everything is so messed up. So there's this sense of of action and figuring out how to do that without falling apart, right? And then the third kind of dimension of that longing, I think, is a framework, a story that can kind of hold all of that um, in such a way that you know some kind of that life can be 
reimagined in the context of some kind of ground of being, of some kind of almost mystical reality where what we sense, what we feel called to, you know, has a deeper meaning. Uh, there's something that moves us into action and into the world. And I see that all the time among young people, among older people. And, you know, unfortunately, when many of those people go to church on Sunday, they feel like whatever it is that I'm feeling, there is no bridge between that and what I hear the preacher talking. And oftentimes, I mean, you know, in church, uh, priests and clergy and ministers are not even able to recognize some of the questions that people are asking as spiritual questions. Yeah, there's there there does tend to be. I got this a lot when I was sort sort of beginning some of this. Like there, there tends to be quite a bit of defensiveness, and then and then to dare suggest that I might. I, I came to the conclusion that I would have to go outside my tradition. Um, not necessarily outside of Christianity, but certainly outside of my faith tradition to find any of that. And then uh, John mentioned, you know, I have a friend who's, I have a friend who's Buddhist and we've talked a bunch about, you know, from his perspective, Buddhism is an excellent framework for Christianity. It's a, it's the, the disciplines and the things that you're taught. Um, they, they, they're not at odds with Christianity. And then we talk with Terry Wildman, who, you know, helped uh, author the First Nations New Testament and, you talk to him about Native American spirituality, and I got that exact same sense. Like everything that man said resonated deeply. I don't know. I just I, I feel like at some point um, the word ecumenical is not strong enough. I think we need that. I think interfaith is, is more. more that those other traditions somehow didn't lose the ability to directly talk about what it's about, and maybe that's because they never lost the experience of what it's about. And I feel like in in the church, you know, we have so many things that we talk about except that one thing, which is how do I encounter the divine? You know, I remember a comparison between living at a Hindu monastery else in my late teenage years versus living in a quasi-monastic seminary uh, focused on monastic spirituality, you know, getting trained to be a priest. The difference between the two is that at a Hindu monastery, every morning someone would walk in and wake you up at, you know, like 4.30 a.m. and say, come on, man, you got to get up and meditate. You have to realize God in this lifetime, you know. At a Christian, you know, kind of quasi-monastic community, you have to get up so you can say the, the daily office or or so you can make sure that, you know, that you check all the things that your rule of life says. You see, those are two very different things. One is about encountering God. The other one, even though the daily office and all of those other things that we practiced, you know, can and should facilitate that kind of receptivity in which we can begin to sense God's presence in our lives. But so much of it already has been turned into something with a checklist. Would you say that maybe the difference is one is acknowledging the presence of God always and the other one is constantly trying to find God? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I think the other one, you know, the Christian one kind of assumes that God equals church and whatever we do in church. 
And again, that's kind of fetishizing the methodologies that we've received because the daily office can be a tremendous tool to encounter God. But sometimes it's used in a way where it becomes about saying it perfectly, making sure that you never make mistakes as to which psalms you say, you know, making sure that you have the right posture, that the tone of your voice is just right, you know. Ancient fathers of the church talk about praying the psalms, you know, like St. Isaac the Syrian. They talk about saying those words, getting to the point where you feel like whatever you're saying from the Psalter names the inner realities of your life, where it feels like you wrote those words. Well, yeah. I mean, it goes from rote memorization to internalizing those things, right? And saying, that's, that's what I, so much of this for me revolves around um, those connections we make, because you're exactly right. I mean, I've been in, I've been in services where, where what happened around me was inconsequential. You know what I mean? Like, I made no connection to what was happening. It all seemed very performative and and whatever else. And then I have been in other places where that caught me off guard entirely. And I'm, 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 you know, participating in the Eucharist, for example, especially, I think it's, I think it's especially helpful. If you're listening and you're of a particular faith tradition, it is really helpful sometimes to step out just on the off chance God might blindside you with something you don't expect, you know, because we can get so into our own familiar patterns um, that the first time I attended a Catholic mass, I, I went in with one expectation and left changed. Like that was different, you know, and, but it was a way to experience God. It was the same thing. I'll bring Terry Wildman up again because he, when he translates the wrong word, but when he um, offers a, a rendition of the New Testament of gospels in particular that are completely couched in Native American spirituality language, I start hearing them again for the first time. And you go, oh, okay. I've, I, I've stopped just saying this from rote and now it's something that resonates deep. So, I don't know, just I'm enamored of the idea of, of trying to maybe step out of those things on purpose so that you can experience them differently. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would be, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you, you had the, the pleasure of meeting Bearheart, who is another one of my, um, you can just say hero. I, I don't want to call him mentors because I, again, I never got to meet <laughs> Bearheart, but, um, and, you, and he took you on a vision quest, which is something he, he did quite often with people. Uh, and it was, it's very intentional, but also at the same time, very, um, it's, it, it is intentional, but intentional in a way that will open you to this spiritual realm, right? It's not, I mean, obviously there are certain things you do within this, within this vision quest, but it also it, it, it allows you to acknowledge the divine and, uh, I, I for all intents and purposes, I just want to know, you know, wh- what that was like, <laughs> because unfortunately, I'm never going to get to have that because unfortunately, he's passed away. Now you're asking the kinds of questions I would ask. So, uh, like, so what's that about? I know. So was that, well, I'm fanboying I'm, I'm out through somebody else. Yeah. So what's that about? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a really life-changing experience. Uh, it happened on the border of New Mexico and Texas. Uh, in the mountains, and um, you know, I, I mean, it was just a really amazing experience. You start with a sweat lodge, where you know, go you go into the sweat lodge, and that was the first time I've ever been into a sweat lodge. I thought I'm gonna pass out within seconds. Hearts offered prayers, 
And when he said all of my relations, you just get this sense that here's this dude who sees trees and birds as siblings. And it's real. This is not like some some guy just saying it. Like he feels it deeply. All of that natural world lives inside of him and he lives inside of it. And then, you know, you, you go, b- before that actually, you select a spot where you're going to sit. And then after that, he instructs you, offers prayers, especially the prayer of protection, where he basically guarantees that no animal will hurt you. And uh, where we were, that was lots of wolves and, uh, you know, uh, at night. And then you go to that spot and you sit there um, day and night, fasting, no water, no food, until you feel that you've received an insight uh, about your lives, about your vocation. And then you go back and, you know, the fire is burning all the time and bare heart every once in a while, you know, prays for everyone and keeps the fire going. And then you come back with your insight, with your vision, and he interprets it for you. And in my case, also offered me uh, a name that he said I should use when I address my creator. And I have to tell you, you know, what he told me in so many ways, he's still unfolding. And it's almost like every year of my life, I discover, you know, a new kind of dimension of of what he said to me. And, you know, by then he was quite old. He was, uh, you know, it was the last few years of his life. And then at the end of the vision quest, you again have, uh, when, when, when everything is concluded, you have another sweat lodge. And it was just an extraordinary experience to be with him, to, to, to pray with him and to receive his guidance. You know, at that time I was in my twenties and it really, kind of confirmed, but also revealed my direction. And of course, some of it I didn't understand until uh, years after. So I'm very grateful for for that ability, to be quite honest with you. I so wish, especially in the last few years, that whole experience kind of re-emerged for me. And I so wish he, he were still around, because I think the world needs him more than more than ever. Uh, so that was my experience, you know, of, of of being with him and and meeting him. And I'm so grateful that there are a few videos of interviews with him, and there are some um, you know some meditations uh, that he led that have been recorded, and two books of his stories about his life. Uh, one of them is "The Wind Is My Mother," and the other, "The Bear Is My Father." Both of those are extraordinary, and I feel they really capture who he was and, in many ways, who he is, as many still experience his guidance and his presence. Yeah, I, I, I feel that you know, people like Bearheart or um, Black Elk or Thich Nhat Hanh are people that um, we need today. And I hope that someone, someone else is there who can take up that mantle. Uh, and I'm not sure who that is, but I, I, th- I think, I think they're out there. We just have to be mindful and listen and, uh, not be blinded by politics and hate and what, what, what religion puts in place of 
these connections to the divine through like contemplative uh, practices. And uh, so, yeah, and, I, you, and know, you know, the, the fascinating thing about Berhard is that he was traditionally trained, you know, Native American elder, respected in many different tribes. He spoke many uh, Native languages. And at the same time, he was a Baptist minister. Uh, yeah. There was yeah. no problem for him. Uh, right. You know, like, it's like kind of, you know, however he needed to show up to benefit the people. That is awesome. And man, I, 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 I'm sure I'm speaking for John when I say that I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together, man. I, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking time to hang with us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation and for this conversation. It's so awesome to, to, to be able to, to be in conversation with both of you. Absolutely. There are, there's more than one book, obviously. I also saw there was another book that you had written with Matthew Fox that um, was that Occupy... Occupied um, Spirituality. Occupy, Occupy Spirituality. So there's some others. Um, we'll link to stuff in our show notes when we release this um, and, and, and direct people to go buy the books, man. Support, support people who are putting out good content and uh, help them keep doing that. But from deep inside my heart, man, I appreciate you. I, I, I feel like like, like we just connected with you on a, on a pretty deep level. And that was necessary. I needed that more than I, <laughs> I think I realized today. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. John, you got anything else? I just, yeah, I just want to echo what you said. Thank you. Um, this was, yeah, amazing conversation. And uh, I, I loved every, every, every minute of it. Um, I could keep going for another hour probably. <laughs> I, I could too. It's always tough to find a place to stop because I'm like, ah! We, uh, we talked about a lot, but there's more to talk about. But maybe we can connect again sometime and, and uh, catch up with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Of course, brother. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.